We are going through this book verse by verse. Uh, this is one tough book because it deals much with the judgment of God for or against Israel. It's tough reading, uh, but we see something about the heart of God in this passage that we're looking at in Hosea 11. One commentator, when musing about this chapter, said this, when God created us to receive his love, to love him, he became vulnerable to our rejection. It is awesome to contemplate Almighty God lonely, lonely for the rapture of our reconciliation with him, the intimacy for which we were created. His heart and our heart made one again. I thought a lot about that passage, and I thought if loneliness means that God has a need, that there is something in God missing and he has to have our relationship, then I would have to disagree with that quote. But if loneliness means that God grieves for a relationship with us because he knows what is best for us, then that kind of loneliness is something that I could uh, connect with in terms of God. God has no needs. He's completely sufficient in himself. But I could see God grieving and being lonely for that fellowship, uh, even missing the fellowship, but not because he needs it, but because he knows that we need it. And so that grief is something that I think is odd to think about in terms of God. I don't normally think of God feeling that way towards me. Now, unless, of course, you're the kind of Christian that never is out of fellowship with God. God bless you. I'll read your book when you write it. But uh, that's not been my experience. It's just not often considered. But he grieves when we are not in fellowship with him. He yearns for our love. He yearns for our well-being, and that comes with us being dependent upon him, communing with him. So think of it this way, that we do not serve an aloof God. So God doesn't give us, you know, a silent treatment when he gets ticked. You know, he doesn't turn his back, which is often done in human relationships. You know, he's not saying, you know, we can't talk about this because I get too angry, you know, <laughs> whatever. That's not God. That's our human relationships, but that's not God. God is not aloof, but he longs to know his children. So with that in mind, let's all stand as we take a look at our passage today, and then we'll dig in. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, 
and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Father, we again are faced with a difficult passage, phraseology that we might not normally be familiar with. And uh, we don't claim that we have it all together. We desperately need your Holy Spirit. We need your Holy Spirit to understand, but more importantly, we need your Holy Spirit to put into practice what it is you're communicating here. And we need your spirit to relate to our spirit of how much it is that you love us. And Lord, I'm convinced that there are many here today that don't know that, don't understand that. Help us to understand that a little more today, how much you yearn for us. I thank you for these, my dear brothers and sisters here today. May they know that they are cared for and loved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When Israel was called a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Let me first address a question that we had. We often do a Q&A after a sermon, and a couple weeks ago, we did a Q&A, and um, I didn't answer the question well. Actually, I don't think I answered it at all. Um, but Israel is referred to as a he in many uh, references early on in the book. Uh, excuse me, a she in many references early on in the book, and then later as a he here. Um, and the question is, why is that done? Well, Perhaps we can find a clue to that in this passage. Each reference depicts a different aspect of our relationship with God. In one case, the she was like an unfaithful spouse. And it's in the context of several chapters there at the beginning. And remember, God was also using Gomer, Hosea's wife, um, as a backdrop of that picture as well. So there was this theme of unfaithfulness and the severity of sin. That was the focus. In other passages, Israel is like uh, a father is to the son, and the son is wayward. And there's a yearning for connection. And the emphasis is upon familial love and fellowship. So these different Contexts are reflected by the different pronouns. Now, you don't have to be a parent to appreciate a healthy relationship of a father to a son or a mother to a daughter. We have experienced, hopefully, that with our own parents. And if you didn't have that kind of relationship with a parent, then you yearn even more for that kind of connection. And in Israel's history, as our passage is telling us, there was this mutual trust, this mutual love between Israel and God the Father, particularly when they were in Egypt. God then orchestrated for Israel to be freed. And the emphasis as, you know, as a baby, as a child, was on this mutuality of the relationship in those younger years. And hopefully you had that with your own parent. As I reflect upon my own father, there was not a lot of 
contentious moments, but I would not describe the majority of them as necessarily close. Part of that was just the era that my dad grew up in. Uh, It was just not the thing to be a part of the intimate details of a a child's life. Uh, But I do have vivid memories of him uh, helping me ride a bike or my little league coach or showing me how to use a lawnmower. And frankly, those things almost take on mythic proportions now that he's been gone for many years, right? But those times are precious. And it's hard to overstate the power of a parent's love for a child. Uh, Now, this passage is not ignoring a mother to a daughter, but our illustration is father to son, so that's why I'm sticking with it. But the passage speaks on the progression of a child to a son and then to walking away. And in Exodus 4.22, God calls Israel his firstborn son and then takes note of this progression here in this passage and it's actually referred to later on in the passage. And if you're a parent, you've traveled through these stages with your children, some successfully, some not so successfully. You know, some of you may not like when they're 12 or 13. You know, you may, may really like when they were younger, or maybe you like it more now uh, as an adult. And some of these transitions are easier than others. So to put it in that backdrop, we could say this. Israel is like a rebellious teenager. That's really what this is saying, is that when God called them to live under the covenant of his law, Israel, in a sense, ran from home and kept doing the very things that God the Father told them not to do, mainly worshiping an idol, loving another God. And so God tries to appeal to Israel with affection. And I often found that when my, when my kids uh, did something wrong uh, early on, when I was doing it right and parenting right, it certainly wasn't always, I would often appeal to how it made me felt and try to appeal to them on an emotional level. And I found that I was getting to them, uh, getting their attention far more using that action than just cracking the whip. Um, I didn't have a whip, although that would have been a good idea, baby, having a whip. No. Um, but the, the, the point is that, is, is that God loved Israel as this early part of their relationship. And the more that God bent down to them to embrace them, and especially when God gave them the law, the more that Israel rebelled. They loved another God. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. So here we have the picture of a father teaching a child how to walk, bending over, touching the child. What a picture. What a metaphor of of God with Israel. But God says, they did not realize it was I who healed them. This seems to harken back to Exodus 15, 22 through 26, the story of the bitter water of Merah, when Moses purified after praying to Yahweh. It says this, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, And they went into the wilderness of Shur. 
They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter, because it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So God compares the bitter water of Merah to the plagues of the Egyptians and made the point that he will continue to be Israel's healer as long as they were faithful. And it tells us here that the Lord had put restraints, cords and bands on Israel. But his regulations, rather than um, being very strict and harsh, are like this. It It was a loving thing for God to do. So he's not trying to put the yoke on right away. He's using cords and bands. It was loving and kind, but Israel didn't see it that way. God's law is not intended to inflict pain, but it's a loving thing. It's a thing in which it's an opportunity for people to be blessed. I mean, even when we mature later and hardships come, and in this sense, Israel has then the yoke, right? There's endurance that can come as a result of that. And God is there to provide all that we need in that moment, even in the midst of the hardship. But what happens, and what happened with Israel, is that we begin to doubt the intent of God. I was listening to a panel discussion on progressive Christianity that denies Scripture, that denies the intent of God, and how it often began with people who doubted God maybe in a particular situation, or they see world events, and they think, well, God can't be in control. God is different than how the scriptures present him. And it's this slippery slope that happens when we reject portions of scripture or we reject portions of God's law or even of his character. And that's exactly what was happening with Israel. They failed to acknowledge that God was there and God provided healing for them, it says they did not know I had healed them. And really, all human relationships begin with a breakdown of people's intent or motives or trust in them. Even if it's a business relationship and certainly a relationship within the family, a significant other, we don't trust. We question motives. And it's downhill from there. And Israel lost trust in the goodness of God. The phrase yoke on the jaws implies that farmers needed to adjust some kind of bit or harness device that either went into the animal's mouth or around its jaw. Now, the adjustment was to ease the burden not to completely take away the yoke. The point is, is that Israel was not liberated from its duties when it fled Egypt. But God was not wanting to have the harsh conditions of Egypt. He was making an adjustment, often like he does with us. 
This truth is echoed in Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So no matter what hardship we are in, God's presence, God's provision, God's promises are still available. Right? So God is yearning for this relationship, and he's always there. Uh, We babysat our six-month-old grandson for a couple days this week, and it reminded me, number one, of the power of a baby's lungs as he cried long and hard, particularly when we put him down. And, you know, some parents think, well, you can't pick up a baby every time it whimpers. Um, But what we found is that every time we picked him up, he would stop his crying. And as a baby, that certainly seems understandable, right? Fast forward to when you might have an adolescent playing baseball on the little league field. And my boys did that. And whenever they made an error in the field, I did not run out onto the field and hug them and say, hey, just want to remind you, I love you, okay? Didn't do that while they were playing baseball, all right? That would have been on ESPN as worst parenting moment, probably. Um, You don't do that, right? Because a child learns that they're on the playing field, they're going to have to process this. That comes with maturity, right? And it teenager, young adult is going to have to process that as well, even though God, being ever present with us, is available. His promises, his provision, his presence, always available to us. I want you to notice what God did for Israel, and by extension, he does for us. He bends down and feeds and provides what is needed. God knows what's needed in the moment. God deals with us as the most loving, attentive parents, not as an avenger. He has a history of that kind of treatment with Israel. Think of the manna that was constantly provided for Israel. When you think of this, it makes the rejection that Israel had with God and rejecting God even more horrendous, right? And if you're a parent, if you've ever been rejected by your child, or the child questions your motives, that could be one of the most hurtful things you can experience as a person. And we understand then why God is stirred with grief in this relationship. Now remember, God did not deal with Israel according to its unfaithfulness, but according to his love. He taught them to walk, he healed them, he protected them, he loved them with bonds of love, lifted their shackles, fed them. And though the nation was faithless in its love for God, God remained faithful in his love with them. And I suppose it's easy when we've read the first 10 chapters of Hosea to think of the severity of God's judgment, and certainly I'm not going to deny that that was the case, you know, what critics soon forget is that there was this hesed, that's the Hebrew word, faithful love that God had for Israel that was based on the covenant that God made with Israel. This did not go up and down according to Israel's response. 
What was going up and down was the fellowship, the intimacy, the communion that Israel had with God. Not too unlike a marriage, you can be married in a covenant relationship with your spouse, but you can have a bad day and you're experiencing a valley, you're not real close, and you know the fellowship is hindered. That doesn't mean the relationship is torn, that doesn't mean, you know, that the other person hates you, it just means that there's got to be uh, restitution, there's got to be restoration. But in Israel's case... Dang, they didn't want to have anything to do with God. And it was continual. It lasted from one generation to the next. Imagine this, for those who are maybe critical of God's judging, let's make it just really practical. Uh, and, and this is a, using the same illustration that God used with Israel. Imagine being married to a spouse who commits countless acts of adultery and then flaunts their displays of love for another person. Continual acts of devotion to another person. I mean, it's hard enough to forgive a spouse who repents of sin, right? It's unimaginable to stay committed when a spouse is unrepentant and continues in their sin. And yet that is exactly what God was doing. Loving, faithless Israel. And listen, it's not any different today. As a Christian, a New Testament Christian, being in Christ, Christ in us. Galatians makes it very plain that when God made a covenant with Abraham, and our covenant is just like that, there was only one party in the covenant, and that was God. There is, we cannot break the covenant with God when it comes to our salvation because we are not involved in the promise. We are the recipients, yes, but we are not responsible to keep that covenant because God has made it with us, and he said, I love you, I will be faithful to you. I will hold you. I will be your God no matter what. Now, either God breaks his own promise with us and we can lose that, or there is the same kind of said love that God has for us as he has with Israel. And even though they did all that they did, God is still saying, I want you. I yearn for you. I want this fellowship to be restored. Now, God clearly is not having that fellowship with unrepentant Israel, even though the covenant is still intact. So you have the covenant has said love, and then you have this fellowship intimacy that God wants restored. And Israel says, I don't want to have anything to do with you. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they refuse to return to me. The sword shall raise, rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Now, this is kind of a, some sticky phrasing here, because in 
Hosea 8.13 and, uh, 8, and 9.3, it says that Israel shall return to Egypt. And right here it says, you shall not return to the land of Egypt. So what gives? Well, even when I covered those passages before, uh, before we recognized that what God was saying is that you're going to return to your former condition, uh, condition of slavery just like it was in when you were in Egypt. In other words, it's, it's not a declaration of geography, but of their spiritual and physical condition of, of slavery. So when in 11.5, it says they shall not return to Egypt, there he's talking about the literal location not being in Egypt, but it's going to be Assyria. Because he talks about Assyria right there in the passage. So you're going to be in bondage, but not to Egypt, to Assyria. Even though they may want to go back to Egypt because of how brutal it would have been in Assyria. The cause of judgment, again, is this persistent refusal to repent. I mean, if you've ever been in a situation where a person is confronted with their sin, you know, and maybe you've had to do that with a friend or maybe even a family member or whatever. And certainly I've had to do it with various and sunder folks over the years. And they're just like, man, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And they basically give you the one finger salute. And it's like, all right. I mean, you just have to kind of give them over to God, like Paul said to do with others in, in 1 Corinthians. The people would not turn from their habitual sin. They would not return to the Lord. But I want you to notice something about this. Notice the phrasing, okay? He didn't say, you won't return to the law. He didn't say, you know, you, you won't return to the precepts. And certainly that's a part of it. I mean, when we, when we walk away from the Lord, um, we do break a code, we pay a price, there are consequences. But notice it's in the context of relationship. They have refused to return to me. And at the essence of every sin problem is a rejection of the person of God. A rejection of drawing near to him. A rejection of the fellowship. Sin is a declaration that I don't need him in this moment. I don't trust him. I don't find his moral law sufficient. It's way too cumbersome. And then we exert our independence and God sees that breach through the lens of relationship. Listen to how God describes Israel's sin elsewhere. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord in Jeremiah 3.20. Or, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So whatever else repentance entails, it must include a returning to a close Communion with God, whereby his presence is welcomed and enjoyed. Talks about 
the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of the gates. In other words, military strength is going to be used against Israel. The reinforced city gates are going to be askew. And the rush of enemy warriors are going to trample any plans that Israel had. They're going to be in subjection to Assyria. Israel's experience between 725 and 722 B.C. testified to the fulfillment of what Hosea was saying is going to come. 2 Kings 15, 29 through 30, it kind of gives the history of this. Um, A king of Israel is assassinated. There is a pact that Israel Israel tries to make with Egypt that goes sour. And then the king of Assyria establishes full control of Israel. The walled city provide no safety, no refuge for the residents of Israel. For the people who would even run to the countryside to try to find safety, the Assyrians would breach the fortifications, they would invade the cities, and they would slaughter the people with slashing swords. And remember, Ezekiel talks about the lost tribes of Israel never to be recognized again. That's a result of this. The sin is again stated. Israel refuses to turn its attention and heart to God. Their heart was bent toward obstinance. Now the they in this passage in verse 7 um, where it says, my people are bent toward me, and though they call out to the Most High, all right? Interpreters, commentators have different, a different slant on what that means, um, but I think it probably means the prophets who had been calling Israel to repentance. The prophets had made repeated calls to Israel to turn from God, and they refused. And under those circumstances, God is not going to relieve the consequences of Assyria captivating them. All right? So that's what he means by you shall not raise them up. You are going to experience the consequences of your rebellion. Mm -mm -mm. What I want you to see more than anything is this theme of the relationship there, right? Um, if you had your uh, kids in Little League, and I've already referenced it before, I, I remember one father that um, was grossly overweight, sitting in his lounge chair, you know, with one of those giant big gulps. I mean, it's like a half a gallon right there, okay? yelling out incessant instructions to his son and then belittling and criticizing his son. I mean, this is like 10, 11 years old, all right? It's like, dude, they're not in the majors, okay? Um, and the parents and I were just looking at each other like, dude, what are you doing, right? I mean, in my mind, okay, I had visions of rumbling with this guy, right? But 
I didn't want to embarrass my kids any more than they already were by me, so I um, didn't do that, didn't want to shame them. But the point is, it's like, you see that? Like, I don't want to be that guy. I, I don't want to criticize. And yet that's what a lot of people think God is like. Winston Churchill had a father like that, like uber-critical, uh, Lord Randolph Churchill. He didn't like the looks of his son, Winston. He did not like his voice. He did not like to be even in the same room with his son. He never complimented him, only criticized him. And the biographers noted young Winston's letters begging both parents for attention. Some of you may have stories of abandonment, distance, neglect by a father. I hope that that's not many. But what I want you to picture about God is he's not that. He's not the guy behind the screen criticizing. He's not like the dad who never says a good word. Right? That's not the picture. Is it possible that our view of God obstructs our relationship with God? Is it possible that perhaps the most important thing in your set of propositions in your worldview is what God thinks of you and some of you have the wrong idea? Right? I mean, here in the book of Hosea, you might get the idea that God is nothing but judgment. But yet, we actually see, if you read the whole book, God is yearning for relationship. Listen to the testimony of other writers. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Isaiah 30, 18. Or in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Or Deuteronomy 3, 31, 8, It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And then the clincher. You want to know the extent of his love? But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is that parent who will go on the field who will hug their kid. God is that parent who says, I love you. God is that parent who whispers constantly through his Holy Spirit, I am there. My promises are good. I am never leaving. Now, we don't always feel that way. But I think most of us know people within our scope of relationships that there are people that no matter what you say, what you do, they don't feel loved. There is something broken. I'm not condemning the person. I'm just recognizing the reality of that. 
And what I'm saying with God, we can't always go by how other Christians are acting. We can't go by what other churches may be saying. We go by the testimony that is always true, which is the testimony of his word, the testimony of his spirit, the testimony of Jesus, that his love is real, that his love is actual, and that he is crazy about you, and that he yearns for you. That's the God we serve. Let's pray.